I hope you're having a wonderful day, because more than likely, I'm gonna ruin it. Anyways, my name's Harmony, and welcome to this episode of What the Actual F. As many of you know, I live in Florida, and Florida has no shortage of strange and disturbing cases. I mean, we are home to Florida Man. But in the case I have for you today, it is not a Florida Man. In fact, there is no humor to be found in this case. So when I was a young girl, about the age of 16, I desperately wanted to meet a vampire. And I'm not talking your sparkly, flat-teeth ones from Twilight, I'm talking your bloodthirsty ones like Interview with a Vampire. Or John Carpenter's vampires. I wanted a badass vampire to love me and protect me for the rest of my life. And that sort of sets the scene for what I'm going to tell you today. Today we're going to dive into one of the most grim and disturbing cases in all of Florida's history. This is the twisted case of Rod Farrell and the Vampire Clan. True Blood the Vampire Diaries. It's the twilight phenomenon that's captivated pop culture. But now, you want to hear something really scary? I needed it. We've got the real thing. It was a stimulant, an aphrodisiac. The bloodthirsty villain at the center of a case that lives in criminal infamy as the vampire murders. Now, it might sound like something straight out of a movie. A vampire clan running around the US killing people. That's just not something you hear in real life. However, that's exactly what happened in 1996. Rod Farrell was a 16-year-old boy from Murray, Kentucky, whose delusions led him to lead a ritualistic cult and brutal murder of a 14-year-old member's parents in their home. Rod was the youngest person to be on death row until his sentence was reduced to life in prison without parole. So who was Roderick Farrell, or as he called himself, Visago, the 500-year-old vampire? Let's find out, shall we? I snapped. I lost full control of myself. I saw red. And the next thing I knew, I was basically covered in blood. Roderick, aka Rod, aka Visago, did not have an easy life growing up. He was born to his then 16-year-old mother, Sandra Gibson, on March 28, 1980, in Murray, Kentucky. His father abandoned him in order to serve in the military and was never a part of Rod's life. His maternal grandfather allegedly sexually abused him when he was around five years old, and this is according to federal court records. However, there were never any criminal charges pursued against his grandfather. That could definitely fuck a kid up. As a kid who grew up with a lot of abuse, sexual and physical and mental, believe me, I can understand. But that's never a reason, a crutch, or an excuse to be a murderer. Sandra and Rod did not have a stable home life either. They bounced back and forth from living situations. She would live with her parents and in public housing, all while Rod was brought along for the ride. Sandra took up work as an exotic dancer and a sex worker to make ends meet. Sandra also introduced Rod to the vampirism and vampire way of life. She did this at an extremely young age. Remember, she was 16 when she had Rod. So she was very much a child. They bonded over Dracula films and vampire, the masquerade, comic books, and video game. 
Sandra was far from an ideal mother and had a questionable and complex relationship with her son. As Rod himself described, at the age of 34, she was even caught writing disturbing love letters to a 14-year-old boy. <clears throat> Let me read an excerpt from one of those letters. Prepare to be uncomfortable. I long to be near you for your embrace. Yes, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortally and truly yours forever. I only hope that one day you will once again return to Murray. You will then come for me and cross me over. I will be your bride for eternity and you, my sire. Ew. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm a 35-year-old woman, and she was 34 when she wrote this. So she wrote this to a 14-year-old boy. That would be like me writing to a 15-year-old. Oh, I can't even finish that sentence. That's disgusting. I'm sorry. That just greatly disturbs me. Any adults, grown-ass adults, talking to children in any sort of sexual or loving, romantic way? Ew. I don't like you, and I hope you burn. Let's move along. The rest of the Vampire Clan's members came from equally depressing and disturbing situations. But again, I'm gonna say this, it doesn't matter your background, you should never become a killer. As someone who's endured hell in their childhood. I promise, it's not your fault, you just need to get help. So, the most notable member was Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson was Rod's right-hand man. Then, there's Chastity Kessie. His then 16-year-old girlfriend, Dana Cooper, and a friend just along for the ride, Heather Windorf. And remember Heather, because this is Rod's damsel in distress and victim. Well, a victim of sorts, but I'm pretty sure she played her own role. I'll let you figure that out. All of them took comfort in being able to belong to a group of outsiders and like-minded people while growing up in a place that is generally unaccepting of anything non-traditional. I guess they felt like a cohesive group, like they finally belonged to something. So they had each other. But this is a group that definitely should never have bonded. He was using all kinds. He was hallucinogenic drugs and all different things, mixing them together as well as drinking alcohol with them. If it was a drug I could get my hands on, I used it. Same thing with sex. I was a sexual deviant with so many girls I don't even know. So this little gang of misfit vampires had their very own little clubhouse. I'm gonna call it a clubhouse for the sake of this podcast. They referred to it as the Vampire Hotel. Now before you get little visions in your mind of some little creepy, maybe treehouse, or maybe some old abandoned hotel that just had a spooky atmosphere. No, 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 no. You're far from correct. The Vampire Hotel was actually some just dilapidated structure in the middle of the woods near Kentucky Lake. It's actually a pretty gross, gnarly looking place. I feel like I'm getting tetanus just looking at it. However, they loved it, and it was here that they threw parties and used psychedelic drugs and even took part in various rituals, including some very uncomfortable sex acts that I don't want to mention because they are still teenagers. And I'm a grown woman, so I just I feel uncomfortable talking about teens and sex. Let's move along. Hearing stories of Heather about suffering abuse at the hands of her father struck a chord with Rod. After Heather and Rod were separated due to a move back to Kentucky, Rod became obsessed with the situation and ended up racking up hundreds of dollars in long-distance phone bills. You see, this was back in the 90s, but didn't really have cell phones, we had pagers and landlines. Which meant it was usually about 7 to 10 cents a minute to talk to somebody long distance. But it was free on nights and weekends! Sorry, I'm a 90s kid. 
The final straw, however, for Rod was when Heather's parents finally cut her off from being able to use the phone because of that ginormous fucking long distance phone bill. As, a, as an adult now who has kids and I think about the times I got so mad at my parents for telling me no or telling me to stop or like straight up stopping me from being able to do something, I would be so mad. Like, why do you have to hold my hand crossing the street? It's just cars. Meanwhile, now I make sure my son is holding on to me as tight as possible because I have seen people go flying on roads that are 20 miles an hour doing 90 and hitting animals. They don't care. They'll just keep going. Remember, no cop, no stop. So like, I understand why her parents were like, hey, <laughs> we're gonna take the phone away because this is a $400 phone bill and like, we only get paid $200 a month. Yeah, our rent is only $25 and groceries are like $50 for the family, but that still doesn't leave much. Sorry, that's just my anger toward the way the economy has grown. Let's move forward. So her parents told her, hey, no more phone because this bill is outrageous. And Rod was having none of that. This was when he decided to rally up his little group of misfit vampires to go on a fateful rescue mission just to save Heather from her evil parents. And once they got Heather, they planned to run off to New Orleans to start their very own little vampire family and live happily ever after. But uh, <laughs> spoiler alert, that, that doesn't go down as planned. Everything I was listening to was dark, it was hard-driven, it was based upon hate, war, death, pain. That's all my music, all of my movies that I watched. He was also in the black arts. He was teaching other kids and other people about being in the black arts and about witchcraft. My bedroom was an array of the darker side of the occult, such as the Necronomicon, the Satanic Bible. I had upside down crosses. I had broken shards of glass laying about in the corner. I had hooks and metal cables wrapped around looking like a Hellraiser. This brings us to November 25th, 1996. Rod and the gang made a 750-mile drive from Murray, Kentucky to Eustis, Florida. After Heather had been picked up and their vehicle had broken down, Heather made a deal with Rod in which she would use her keys to unlock her home so that her family's vehicle could then be stolen, and the little vampire clan could take their new chariot to New Orleans. In exchange, Rod agreed to perform the turning ritual in which she would consume his blood and officially be a vampire forever. <laughs> or some evil laugh like that. The ritual took place early that morning in Eustis Cemetery. Rod consumed a significant amount of LSD before Heather admitted to drinking Rod's blood from a self-inflicted razor blade wound. So like all together, this was real clean. Thinking about it is straight up giving me the heebie-jeebies. The group then departed to retrieve the car from Heather's house shortly after this little blood ritual grossness. Keep in mind, Rod is high off his ass. So upon arriving at the Windorf residence, Rod and Scott enter the home through the garage. And this is when they find Mr. Windorf peacefully resting in the living room on the couch. After several awkward moments of silence and deliberation, Mr. Windorf awoke to his skull being violently smashed in by Rod's crowbar. That's right, Rod had decided to bring a crowbar in. Not exactly sure why, but he had it. Mr. Windorf suffered more than 22 blows to the face. That's fucking brutal. So then, upon hearing this commotion and struggle, Mrs. Windorf entered the living room from the kitchen and was horrified to see the sight of her husband being beaten to death by these intruders. 
In an attempt to interrupt and stop this horrible act, she splashed scolding hot coffee in the face of Rod, who, of course, instantly retaliated with the crowbar, hitting her immediately in the face. The blow was so hard, it severed her brainstem, killing her instantly. He was pissed. Everything went in a blur at that time. She basically asked me, she's like, who are you? And I told her, run, get out of here. Or at least I thought I did. And instead she charged at me and flung the coffee in my face. The next thing I know, I've taken her down to the ground and I've beaten her to death. I am just sort of getting the grasp that I just killed this man over here. Now I've just killed his wife. What just happened? How did I even get here? After this brutal and gruesome double murder, Rod and Scott proceeded to ritualistically burn their victims and dance around their dead bodies. Yeah, just like a regular little party. Nothing to see here, nothing disturbing going on at all. Before leaving, they also stole some valuables like jewelry and credit cards before getting the family's Ford Explorer and taking off to their little happy world in New Orleans, I don't know. Riding off into the sunset, I guess, in their stolen chariot. However, the plan, as I said, wouldn't go as they wanted. You see, Heather had an older sister. Her older sister was 17-year-old Jennifer, and she would discover her parents' bodies around 10.30 that night. I do want to let you guys in on a little something here. Heather apparently was unaware her parents had actually been murdered until later. She assumed that they had gotten in and stolen the car without having any real issues. And her parents were just fine and dandy. Because obviously no one's going to stop anyone from stealing something of theirs. And absolutely, in no way, shape, or form is some sort of altercation going to go down. Nope. Nope. Not at all. They're just going to be like, yeah, sure, take our car. We don't mind. Oh, you have our daughter too? Fantastic. Have a wonderful life. By the way, I filled it up already, so you don't have to worry about gas. All right, Heather, sure. So, as you guessed, there were warrants put out for the group of teens on November 27th. And after four days of evading law enforcement, they were finally captured by police on November 28th. This was done after they tracked a phone call made by Chastity where she called her grandparents asking if they could send her a little bit of moolah. Hey, Graham Graham, yeah, we're kind of out of money and uh, we need to get to New Orleans. Oh, what have I been doing? Not hanging out with a murderer. No, not at all. Anyways, Gam Gam, I love you and if you could go ahead and send that to me through Western Union, that'd be great. Scott Anderson received two life sentences in prison. The amount of his involvement in the murders has come under quite a bit of question. Though he claims he never actually touched Mr. or Mrs. Windorf, he claimed he had attempted and failed to calm a raging rod. <laughs> a raging rod. Sorry, I'm super immature, let's move forward. Anyways, Scott claimed that Rod had, quote, gone crazy and began bashing in their skulls with the crowbar. That he, in fact, did not murder or help murder any of the Windorfs. At first, Rod also completely denied the accusations, claiming he was being framed by a rival vampire gang. You guys know how tough it is out there on those vampire streets. It's a regular West Side Story. The sharks and the jets, but vampires. Eventually, with an overwhelming amount of evidence piled against him, he pled guilty. He received two charges of first-degree murder, robbery, and burglary, and was sentenced to death. This made him the youngest American to ever be on death row. Scott Anderson received two life sentences in prison. Again, the amount of his involvement in the murders has come under question several times. 
but he still will never leave prison. Charity Kessie and Dana Cooper made plea deals in exchange for a reduced sentence. Charity was sentenced to 10 years but was released in 2008, and Dana was sentenced for 17 but was released in 2015. Scott's sentence was recently changed in 2018 to 40 years and credited the 22 years he had already spent in prison. By the time Scott Anderson is released, it will be 2032. He will be a ripe young age of 51. If you ask me, it's still not enough time. But I don't like murderers, though. I guess that's just my opinion. In 2000, Rod Farrell's death sentence was changed to life in prison after the Florida Supreme Court ruled defendants must be at least 17 years old at the time of charges when they are filed in order to be able to be executed. And Rod was 16. So he don't get to die, apparently, even though he decided that two people should. Yeah, explain that logic. Sorry, again, I don't like murderers. To this day, Rod remains at the Tomoka Correctional Institution, serving out his life sentence. It is absolutely terrifying what some people are capable of. Many people wonder if Rod would have committed these terrible acts if he was not subject to so much trauma and torment in his childhood. And we do see this often with several serial killers and murderers. They suffered in their childhood. But as I stated, and I will remain to believe, you choose what you become. You choose how you respond. You choose your actions. People may have done bad to you, but that does not give you the reason, the crutch, or the excuse to do bad to others. As stated, I am a person who endured a lot of abuse and trauma in their childhood, and I would never, ever think of ending someone's life. I am responsible for my actions, and so is everybody that we speak about on this podcast. So what do you think? Do you think Rod maybe, just maybe, wouldn't have become what he was if he wasn't exposed to all that he was as a child? Or are you like me and believe that your actions are your responsibility and what you do is what you choose? And Rod so happened to choose this. I'd love your response. As always, you can send me an email at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. You don't have to just give me input on this case, you can give me input on any episode I have released in the past or in the future. And you can also just tell me how much you hate this show. Although I, I don't know why you would make it this far in the episode if you, if you don't like it. So that was the disturbing tale of Rod Farrell and the Vampire Clan. Pretty fucked up, right? Evidently there's a very strong possibility that I'm going to have life without parole commuted to a term of years, if not time served. Which means that after 20 years behind bars, Rod the Vampire Murderer could be a free man anytime now and he already has his new life planned. I have a house, I have a woman, I have a job waiting on me. I even have a cat and a dog waiting. Well guys, here we are, the end of the episode. Time to say our goodbyes. Be strong. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode about the twisted tale of Rod Farrell and his vampire clan. I look forward to what I have to share with you on the next episode of What the Actual F. But until then, you guys stay safe, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye bye now!